Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 3. Then, then we focus now on the souls that are getting ready to cross the river into hell itself, and guess what? They are eager for the crossing. Very odd. They are eager for the crossing. And then as they stand there waiting to be uh, led across, they can be heard uh, condemning everybody. Line 103 and following. They execrated God and their own parents and, ma and humankind and then the place and time of their conception seed and of their birth. They're sitting there blaming everybody, blaming God, blaming their parents, blaming the age in which they live. Sound familiar? And that's a symptom of what leads to hell. It is that it's, it's, the, it's the inability to experience that repentance that might lead to something. So I'll read you a little poem, uh, Anna Russell poem called Psychiatric Folk Song. Because this is very... When, when you find yourself blaming God, blaming parents, blaming society, blaming, you know, realize that Dante says you're standing right on the, right on the riverbank on the other side of which is hell. So here's psychiatric folk song. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers. And so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. But now I'm happy I have learned the lesson that this taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Sixty dollars an hour. Well, uh, to just conclude this Canto Three, um, Another very strange thing happens. Virgil explains to Dante, uh, Dante wonders why they're so, uh, th these souls, even though they're mum mumbling like that, they're so, uh, in, in a way, accommodating. And Virgil says, uh, they are eager for the river crossing because celestial justice spurs them on so that their fear is turned into desire. Their fear is turned into desire. One of the great literary images of this is Ahab and Moby Dick. I think what's meant here is that something we can observe, observe in ourselves and, and all around, and that is that that which we fear and hate becomes obsessional. And finally, it becomes the organizational principle of our lives. We're, it, it, it is the thing that organizes our existence. So the fear, I think saying the fear is turned into desire is another way of saying they have become completely compulsive completely obsessional. And it be what happens is that 
one becomes the thing one fears and hates. That's it. See, that's it. In the sense that Dante says the fear becomes desire or longing, it's, it's simply revealing some strange, mysterious thing, which is that we gravitationally, we, we are drawn into that thing that we hate and fear. If we, you know, some people say there, there are two super, there's two universes superimposed on one another, uh, one organized on the principle of love and one organized on the principle of fear. And you have to choose which one you're going to live in. They're absolutely superimposed. Uh, but if you choose to live in the one that's fear and suspicion and hatred, you become the thing you're fearful of. And, you, you know, documented cases of this that are big items in the news. And Dante falls into a swoon. Well, Dante wakes up in Canto 4, uh, having rested his eyes, and uh, he looks upon a melancholy valley, and Virgil says, Let's, let us descend into the blind world now, and Virgil turns a little pale, and Dante thinks he's frightened, and, and uh, gives Dante some concern until... <coughs> Uh, he's told by Virgil that what caused the pallor was compassion, not fear. And one of the reasons Virgil is compassionate for the people who live here is because that's where he lives. Um, and what we learn at first about this place is that, line 26, there was no outcry louder than the sighs that caused the everlasting air to tremble. The sighs arose from sorrow without torments. Sorrow without torments. We have uh, sometimes some people have characterized our time as an age of anxiety. Uh, anxiety being a, a, a fear that has no focus. Um, a sorrow without torment is a kind of is a kind of sorrow without focus. It's a, it's a sadness, recognition that somehow one is missing the point without any sense of what the point might be. So. Um, I think it can be related to. We spoke last week about the words help me and how if you say them out loud you, you can feel like you're about to lose your, your control, which is exactly right. And likewise with a sigh. If you really allow yourself to sigh, I mean, I don't want to turn this into the primal screen therapy, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that that puts you in touch with something. Virgil explains they did not sin, and yet, though they have merits, that is not enough. That is not enough. 
because they lacked baptism, the portal of the faith that you embrace. They did not worship God in fitting ways. Now, this is limbo, and Dante uh, receives the image of limbo from his religious environment, and he is trying to turn those images into poetry uh, and to explore their deeper implications. We have a lot of trouble with limbo, uh, and I think probably we need to have a lot of trouble with it. But these are the souls that are suspended. Uh, these are the souls just on the other side of the river from the lukewarm. The lukewarm are the, those who had no fundamental commitments. And these are on the other side of the river. And uh, we could say they are mirrors of each other in that they have not made a radical enough decision. Now, the lukewarm failed to make a radical enough decision because they lacked passion. The souls in limbo failed to make a radical enough decision because they lacked, here comes the corniest word in the modern lexicon, a paradigm. They lacked the archetype. Now this is strange to us, but that's what I think the, poet, the poem is saying. You can't, you're, own, you're not free to become something you can't imagine becoming. And uh, Virgil should know. He died in 19 B.C., about um, 50 years uh, before the Sermon on the Mount. What if um, somebody uh, is lost in the woods and is raised by wolves? They don't become human. Now, that's not fair. They didn't choose to be lost. They don't become human. It's just that simple. Well, what if they get lost in the woods and get raised by a bunch of moonshiners who don't know, you know. They become barely human. Maybe a way to look at it is forget the doctrine of one religion being better than another or any of that kind of funny business. Two, the two groups on the other side of the river. One didn't, if I can use this word, didn't really believe anything. And there's enough that we know about that experience. And the others, I'm, uh, to, to change things slightly, believe. But what they believed wasn't so. Now, what if what I believe isn't so? Then, however earnestly I believe it, and however 
innocently I arrived at that belief and however steadfastly I adhered to it and however morally upstanding I was in my allegiance and so on and so forth, if it isn't so, too bad. Now that is a very harsh universe, but that's the kind of universe I think Dante saw. If, it, if one believes something and it isn't so, perhaps a, an analogy would be um, if I go, you know, if I go to the stream and drink the water, uh, and it has lead in it, I get lead poisoning. And uh, it doesn't, it's not my fault. It's lead in the water, and that's not fair. Damn! I didn't put the lead there. Looked clear to me. I drank it. I got it. It's now what? You know, if, for people who think of God as the great choreographer, you say, well, hell, wait a minute. You know? But I think Dante is, in, in a way, saying this is, this is the way that we, that's the way it is. There's a, this is, life is a risky business. And you go to the stream, it looks clear, it looks great, you know? It, it, it looks, uh, and, and you drink at that stream. You say, well, officer, I did not know this was a 35-mile-an-hour zone. And he says, here's your ticket. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it comes back to this, it's not enough. Some other transformation. Then the image here is baptism. And as Connie's pointing out, not baptism as, as some rite that belongs to some... That's, that's the possession of some particular religious group, but baptism in a larger generic sense, I come to experience the fact that you, you have to lose your life in order to find it. I think that's the baptismal experience. Well, if, if I have not had that experience, um, I, I'm, I'm simply... There's only so far I can go. Now, if I have not been instructed that that's the way the universe works, I might have the experience and not realize it. You see what I mean? I might actually have the experience of losing my life and finding it, but I wouldn't have the wherewithal to recognize that that's what has happened. So I might just go right on and not realize that I'd stumbled upon the secret. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that we, that you know, Canto Four is to be held up as, a, as some kind of ironclad law, but uh, that it's not enough to be virtuous, uh, but some other uh, transformation of the life is required. And if, we, if we're not informed about that, uh, we simply might not have the wherewithal to experience it. If, you know, this whole thing about uh, how, how long would it take us to reinvent the wheel? Or how long would it take a room full of monkeys at typewriters to come up with the prologue to the Gospel of John? How long would it take us to reinvent the cross? If we had no clue to it, 
how long would it take us to come to the realization that we've got the whole damn thing upside down? It would take an awfully long time. And Dante is simply uh, exploring the hard facts that you, you're only free to become what you can imagine becoming. Now, we don't... See, that's just... For most of us, uh, it, it's just too much to tolerate, that kind of arbitrariness. But let me propose the, the following. Let's... Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands about who, who does and who does not uh, entertain the speculation on life after death. Let's just... Because Dante... In order, we have to assume that at least for the purposes of really getting hit by this poem. Just assume it. Um, life after death. Okay. Um, now, under that assumption, I die, I'm going to live on somehow. How about my dog? Well, I won't get into cats because I know there's some confusion. But how, how about my, how about the fish in my fish tank? Right. How about the ant on the sink? Well, okay. How about the the the, the baboon in the zoo or whatever? Okay. The point is, if one entertains this notion of a life after death, where do you draw the line? Well. Okay, well, we go back and we say, well, we draw it somewhere in that million and a half years between, you know, when we were on all fours and when we started painting on caves. That's not good enough. It, 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 one either does or does not survive death. It's a line. It's like a line like that. Where is it? And wherever it is, is it arbitrary? Cosmically? You see, if you begin to think about that, you're, lots of things start to unravel for you. The point is that this image in this poem is exploring something like that. As arbitrary, as confusing, as intolerable in some way. But Dante felt that... Dante lived in a, in, a, in a world ever so much more exciting than ours because it was consequential. It mattered. And if one simply was not apprised of the situation, then terrible things could result. And so here are the souls that are in limbo, simply because they had nothing to go on. They had nothing to go on. It wasn't their fault. 
So they don't get a bad punishment. They get a kind of little suburban thing off to the side. By the way, speaking of this, it's not enough to be virtuous. You have some other thing has to happen. The first, it's also not enough to have the paradigm. We didn't talk about it, but in Canto Three, he doesn't mention any of those uncommitted. But the first, he does mention by reference uh, the great betrayer, and the great betrayer is a pope who resigned his his uh, papal position and let it fall into the hands of a person Dante considered to be uh, a scoundrel. And so the first person we meet in, in, in the Inferno is a pope, former pope, lest we think that having the spiffy little paradigm is going to do it any more than having virtue is going to do it. It's a dying and a rising universe. It's a dying and a rising universe, and, 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 it's, and if we think it's a, a getting and keeping universe, we're just going to run smack into it. I think it's so much like my, my, my daughter Anya. She said, Daddy, that's a mean lion. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul said, uh, Be not conformed to the spirit of your age. Uh, which has turned out to be a very difficult thing to adhere to. Uh, he did not say, be not conformed to the spirit of the age of your parents or grandparents. We've, we've, we've gotten reasonably good at, at, uh, at doing that. If not, as a matter of fact, sometimes we pride ourselves at having not, at not having conformed our lives to the, to, uh, our, uh, the, the thing that was, that was, uh, the dominant motif in the, older generation. Uh, so in a sense, we're always fighting the last war. But it's very difficult not to be caught up in the, in the, in the, the things that are affecting your time. Uh, in the negative sense, uh, when Jung says, uh, when a wave of indignation sweeps your country, you will probably find yourself among the sweepings. And uh, the, there's a broader application of that same theory, and that is that when some major motif or to use Jungian terminology, a major archetype uh, takes hold of an age, it's very difficult not to be caught up in it oneself. There's a little poem by Simeon Stylites that goes like this. The little front wave ran up on the sand and frothed there, wildly elated. I am the tide, said the little front wave, and all the waves before me are dated. Well, it, it tends to be the way in which we live our lives. This generation, no matter when it happens, is usually the one that is breaking absolutely new ground, uh, repealing the, 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 the law of uh, uh, original sin or whatever, and uh, starting off on some wholly new and divinely inspired uh, uh, undertaking. Well, Dante had this same dilemma. He, in his time, uh, as we've talked about in the uh, weeks preceding, uh, in his time, romantic love was the dominant uh, archetypal, mythological, psychological, sociological force. And it was turning everything upside down. It was an enormous, enormous uh explosion of energy. Uh, it produced, among other things, uh, the Divine Comedy. 
It produced the great cathedrals. It produced some fairly, um, shall we say, uh, some fairly energetic sociology. Um, it was an enormous uh, upheaval psychologically. Uh, created a new literary genre, unleashed new cultural forces. Comparable, perhaps, although this is a lame parallel, comparable, to, perhaps, in some ways, to the discovery of by the physicist of nuclear fission, uh, which was discovered at first kind of haphazardly, uh, but then celebrated as the as a discovery of a of a source of energy, virtually unlimited, uh, which would transform everything. And then, of course, it was only by fits and starts that we discovered. Uh, one by one, the uh, darker implications of the fission process. Uh, and, uh, and in Dante's time, likewise, the, uh, the darker implications of Romantic mythology were uh, there to be discovered. Not many people perhaps were discovering it. By, by and large, as we talked about before, people fell out over this issue in uh, in uh, uh, predictable positions, there, and, and this is a gross generalization, but I will use it anyway. Um, there were the, uh, the, the moral custodians, uh, the, in Dante's time primarily the church hierarchs, who began to regard this romantic love uh, uh, enthusiasm with great skepticism. Uh, and the hierarchs had a way of, uh, of of combining this great skepticism with a fairly rigorous uh, uh, enforcement procedure. Uh, so they were the skeptics who were saying no to this new energy. And on the other hand, you had the poets, and you know about the poets. They they uh, sort of their philosophy is to let her rip, and they uh, they were celebrating. The troubadours were celebrating this new energy form. Uh, and in the middle, somewhere covered un underneath all the uh, all, all the uh, rubble from the warfare, were the mystics who were understanding it in some really important way. And Dante. Now Dante distinguishes himself by being uh, not quite allied with either camp. And one wonders how it is that Dante. Uh, was exempted in some way from the uh, how he in a way obeyed the the Pauline injunction to be not conformed to the spirit of your age. Uh, well, there's one possibility that uh, I would like to explore at least uh, to get us into thinking about Canto Five of the Inferno. In Canto Five, as you know. Um, Dante deals with what apparently uh, is the realm in which the lustful are being punished. I say apparently because we don't want to jump to conclusions about what that word means until we hear Dante out on the subject. But um, there were plenty of people to choose from, uh, from uh, classical literature and from romantic literature, to exemplify this sin. And Dante names them. There's Anthony and Cleopatra. Uh, there's Tristan and Isolde, uh, and so on, many others. So he had plenty to choose from, but he chose Paolo and Francesca, and he 
made Paolo and Francesca, the little rendition of Paolo and Francesca, their love affair, their adulterous love affair, uh, he turned that into one of the primary mythological statements about romantic love in all of Western literature, and he did it in about 18 lines, which is a which is a feat of poetic economy uh, not to be not to be parallel. Uh, you know the other renditions of this go book length, so uh, he has to be saluted for the for the sheer economy of this. But in any way, any case, he chose Paolo and Francesca, a, a love affair unknown to us except for Dante uh, apprising us of it. Uh, but reasonably well known to the people of his time. Now, why did he choose Paolo and Francesca's economy, I mean, Paolo and Francesca's love story, and why uh, is Dante exempted from being caught up in the spirit of his time? And I would suggest these two might relate to each other. Paolo and Francesca, uh, for those of you who haven't uh, gotten into this yet, uh, Paolo, Francesca was married to Paolo's older brother, who was a cripple, and they had children, a family and children. Uh, Paolo was married to another woman, and they had children. But Paolo was a dashing young fellow, and uh, he and Francesca fell in love on the side and fell into each other's arms. And uh, Paolo's older brother, Francesca's husband, uh, found them in a, shall we say, compromising position and slew them both, stabbed them to death. This happened... Uh, and it was quite a famous murder. This happened when Dante was 17. You remember back when you were 17? Um, not only, not only was romantic love uh, abroad in the sense of it was in the cultural atmosphere, but Dante was 17. He was a year away from that uh, encounter with Beatrice on the uh, at the street corner where Beatrice looked at him and said, hello, and turned him into a poet. So it is that time of Dante's life when all of these forces are coming into play very powerfully in his being, and suddenly he picks up the morning paper. It wasn't quite that way back then, but to, to get, he picks up the morning paper, and there it is. Paolo and Francesca, dead. Now, also on top of this, we have to add the medieval understanding about the about the uh, the the long-term implications of this, namely, to die in mortal sin without a chance to repent, means spending eternity in hell. There was almost certainly no chance to repent. It was so that a medieval reading the morning paper would not only conclude, oh, too bad, they're dead, would also conclude they're going to spend all eternity in hell. Now, if you're 17 and uh, you're living in an atmosphere of romantic love and you read that in the morning paper, uh, it, it provides a very powerful and sobering shock when we were talking, when we did the uh, Gospel, of, I think it was the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about the uh, the fact that there are people who pride themselves on having. We use these two metaphors: people who pride themselves on having a, a, a glazed eye. 
They see all the beauty and the wonder and the, everything is lovely or whatever it is. And then there are those who have the eagle eye, who see with a kind of cold clarity. Uh, and the world really belongs to those who can develop both of those capacities. And uh, we could say, I think, that when Dante picked up, so to speak, the morning paper and read about the death of Paolo and Francesca, he developed in the midst of this glazed eye that was happening to him, a cold eye, a eagle eye, and therefore began, when, it, when time was right in his life, began to explore the implications of romantic love in a way that nobody else was able to. Everybody else was still falling out on one side or the other of the issue, and Dante was seeing it. In, in fact, it was the kind of romantic love that was to happen to him a year later when he met Beatrice on the street, uh, but the death of Paolo and Francesca, perhaps, put him in touch with its dark, the dark implications of it. And so, what did he learn? Let's just let's just have a little fancy. What did he learn when he picks up the morning paper and reads about Paolo and Francesca? He learned the same thing that you and I learned, or those of us who took Latin in high school, the same thing we learned the first time we, the first Latin lesson we had in high school. Now, who took Latin in high school? Okay, what was the first thing you learned in Latin class in high school? Amo, amas, amata, mamas, amatis, amat. Namely, that love is a verb. Love is a verb. It is not something that happens to you. It is something you do. And so, Dante is in position to begin to treat this in the ways in which he treats it throughout the Divine Comedy with incredible sophistication and subtlety and depth. And until we learn to read him that way, uh, we read over these passages uh, not realizing that we have just very quickly skimmed over uh, some great yawning chasm in the poem. And so we'll just pause a little, go over it a little bit uh, more slowly this morning. Canto five begins the second, si uh, second circle of hell, where the lustful are punished. But we'll put that word in quotation marks right now. And we notice, just to get a, another take on the geographical setting, we notice that there's less space but more grief, and that is in keeping with the structure of hell. As one goes into hell, it becomes more confining, more rigid, more darker, and uh, more given to fixed damnations, more and colder. Uh, so that's a little reference to the geography of the thing. And then we get the monster, Minos. Now, Dante has taken this character out of classical literature and uh, demonized him a little bit further and uh, set him at the entrance, not exactly at the entrance. There are several entrances, uh, so to speak, as we go into hell, uh, several passageways. But he sets Minos uh, just before we meet the first real sinners in hell. We have had the, the uncommitted who didn't sin, didn't sin or didn't do anything else, on the vestibule of hell, we've had the virtuous pagans who have a little suburban retreat just at the entrance to hell. But these are the first real sinners. 
And right before we see them, we meet Minos. And Dante, I think, has alluded to something when he describes Minos. In, uh, in line 10, he calls Minos the connoisseur of sin. Now, there's a little allusion here, I think, to a kind of aesthete, a kind of, um, uh, well, the word connoisseur, I don't think, can be improved upon. Uh, somebody who has, the, who has uh, can, can, with great subtlety, discriminate these various sins, because, in a way, he represents them all. And then a few lines later it says, as many times, now this is how we find out where the soul, or this is the first uh, instruction the soul gets on where it belongs in hell, as many times as Minos wraps his tail around himself, that marks the sinner's level. He wraps the tail around four times, that means you go to the fourth level of hell. See, This is not only a numerical device, I think it is a symbol for what hell is. Uh, and it's an important symbol particularly to have right here. All of the... Uh, one goes to hell for perverting that which could lead to heaven. Every sin is a perversion of the impulse to love. Every mortal sin is a perversion of the impulse to love. And it's the impulse of lo to love that leads to heaven and a perversion of that that leads to hell. So we are presented here with Minos as a personification of hellishness. And what we learn is that he wraps his tail around himself. Now it's interesting because our first sinners are apparently people who have sinned uh, erotically. We may want to revise that later, but apparently they are people who have sinned erotically. Eros means love. That's what Eros means. What Eros means in the larger sense, psychological sense, is relatedness. It means relatedness. Minos, you remember the, the sign over hell, the gate to hell, said, Perme, Perme, Perme duro. Through me, through me, through me, eternal damnation. It is the breach of the erotic impulse, if I can use that term not for, for the genital expression of it, for the, but for the whole uh, relatedness dimension. This is a related universe. This is a relational universe. And to, and to, uh, and to breach... Uh, Faith with that related universe is to begin the descent into hell. So that uh, I want to be able to use the word, particularly today, use the word eros and erotic, not strictly having to do with with literal sexuality, but having to do with relatedness. Sexuality is one of the very powerful ways in which we become related. Uh, but the larger question is relatedness. The reason I think we are uh, fortunate to have Minos instruct us before we get into uh, Canto V is because he stands for, symbolically, a kind of autoerotic uh, 
hell. He wraps his tail around himself. How's that? You know, the bumper sticker says, arms are for hugging. Minos has a tail for hugging, and he does it to himself. That's the symbol of hell. Now, you have the paperback version of Mandelbaum's translation. Uh, for about 30 more dollars, you could get this version and, uh, and get some of the racier uh, renditions of Barry Mosier's uh, drawings. Uh, so I want to bring one to you. Um, I might pause for a second and say to the people who are listening to this on tape, I'm sorry. <laughs> Use your imagination. Um, <clears throat> this is, uh, this picture on your left here is Minos. Uh, you will notice that he is, uh, shall we say, in heat. Um, Barry Mosier is a graphic artist, but I consider him one of the best Dante interpreters. He saw, now, I could show you the, the uh, Dore version of this same monster. It pales to absolute insignificance compared to Barry Mosier. Mosier has caught the essence of what Minos is, and Minos is a personification of hell. It is the autoerotic impulse to turn what should be a relational impulse back on oneself. So we've been alerted symbolically already to the nature of the thing. Dante proceeds, and in this circle of hell, there is this wild wind blowing, and uh, these souls being blown by it, and uh, cursing the divine as they're being blown. And then we learn, Dante says, I learned that those who undergo this torment are damned because they sinned within the flesh, Subjecting reason to the rule of lust. Subjecting reason to the rule of lust. Do not be um, lulled to sleep by the, by the conventionality of that line. That sounds like so many of the lines out of the, out of the uh, uh, church fathers or out of media, scholastic uh, philosophy or, or more of medieval moral theology or whatever. Well, let's try to investigate what that might mean. Uh, George Santayana is a 20th century philosopher who, one of the few I can read, he said, I think he's half poet. That makes him more interesting one to read. Anyway, he says, it is a terrible dilemma in the life of reason whether it will sacrifice natural abundance to moral order or moral order to natural abundance. Now, this is this is a rough equivalent to this thing we're talking about about the hierarchs and the poets. Right? It is a terrible dilemma in the life of reason whether it will sacrifice natural abundance to the moral order or moral order to natural abundance. Whatever compromise we choose proves unstable and forces us to a new experiment. It is the instability of those compromises that is 
one of the engines of consciousness. The creative tension between natural abundance and moral order is enormously important to, to uh, the maturation of consciousness. So we get a hint of that when Dante says subjecting reason to the rule of lust. Uh, Yeats has, echoes a little bit of this same dilemma, although more, perhaps more poetically, when he says, I know, although when looks meet, I tremble to the bone. The more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. Moral abundance, I mean, uh, natural abundance or the moral order. I know, although when, when looks meet, I tremble to the bone. The more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. But here in Canto V, we have neither natural abundance nor moral order. Natural abundance ought to be energetic, and moral order, if it deserves its name, ought to be architecturally daring. So we don't have either one of those in these souls that are being punished in Canto V. Perhaps one way of reading Dante's line, subjecting reason to the rule of lust, is that these souls have traded consciousness for something ultimately less exciting. Uh, something perhaps momentarily more titillating, but ultimately less exciting. So then we then Dante begins to instruct us. He's assuming now we're reading it for the third time because we haven't figured it out the first two, so he's careful now to lay down some further instruction. He begins to instruct us with imagery, which is what poets are paid for. And the imagery is birds. Notice that all the souls that are being punished here are being whipped around by this wind. And so we have birds. Now, that in itself is important because they're on the wing, right? Uh, they probably, uh, if they don't consult their own, uh, if they don't consult their own uh, cognizance about the fact that they're in hell, they probably think of themselves as being free. Uh, that's the nature of being on the wing, you know. They are. Going with the wind, they're free. This is a place. This is the first stop in hell. Is where everybody feels like they're free. This is where all the Jonathan Livingston seagulls go, <laughs> because it feels like freedom. The first group of birds are the starlings. Now, the starlings represent the great mass of humanity. And Dante picks the starlings because of the way starlings uh, rise up out of the field. We've all seen them rise up out of the field and swoop around. And if you could go, if you could take your little microphone and interview any one of them in flight, he would say, oh, so utterly unique, so independent. 
so airborne, and from Dante's perspective, so predictable, so in mass. So the starlings. Now Dante, I think, is analyzing his age. He is analyzing his own age and how it has violated the Pauline injunction and gotten caught up in its own motifs. So first we have the starlings. That's the great mass of people. And then, line 46, we have the cranes. But these are all similes. Just as cranes in flight will chant their lays, arraying their long file across the air. Now we have the cranes, ever so much more elegant than the starlings, and uh, chanting their lays, singing their little songs as they go along. S flying now, not in mass like the starlings, but single file. And these, of course, are the poets. This is Dante's, I, I, I feel confident, this is Dante's symbol for his fellow poets. It seems less of a collective enterprise, but it still is. They are still subject to the wind, and they are still they are still flying in formation, even though they're singing their little song. It still has that degree of predictability to it. Now, he's going to save the hardest case for last, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, because in both Canto 5 and 6, Dante takes the hardest case. Uh, any hack moralist could start, you know, ticking off the seven deadly sins and write some absolutely dull version of the inferno but Dante is not interested in that he wants to take the hardest case and so he will postpone we'll get to Paolo and Francesca they represent the hardest case so the thing to note is that they're all in flight and all convinced of the freedom and all being blown by wind that they have no control over and then Dante starts to pick a few of them out. Now, he names some below. He names Dido by reference to her husband. Then, she, and then he names Cleopatra, Helen, Achilles, Paris, Tristan. But he reserves a comment here, which I think is very important, uh, and he applies it to Semiramis, who is the Egyptian queen, survived her husband, and was, was uh, known for her... Uh, her uh, license and Dante has these lines I just want to call your attention to them they're lines uh, uh, 55 to 57 beautifully rendered I think by Mandelbaum her vice of lust became so customary that she made license licit in her laws to free her from the scandal she had caused Her vice of lust became so customary that she made license licit in her laws to free her from the scandal she had caused. That is to say, she applied the moral uh, criteria after the fact and uh, designed the moral criteria to, sit, to suit the facts, which is, if you notice, the way we try to do it lots of times. It's so much easier to uh, 
you know, throw it up on the canvas and then call it art. Uh, or, or to spin it out in life and look back on it and concoct a moral rationale for it. Well, then we get to the harder case. Dante already, he's already, his knees are already bending under him, you know. He says, pity seized me and I was like a man astray. He's admitting that his, that, the, that this is very, this comes very close to home for him. Then we get the next simile. Line 82, even as doves, when summoned by desire, borne forward by their will, moves through the air with wings uplifted and so on. Doves. It's starlings, cranes, now doves. And among the doves will be Paolo and Francesca. Now, I'm not sure how to characterize the doves, but I would say, given Dante wants to always wrestle with the hardest case, I would say the doves are the innocent victims if we put innocent in quotation marks. The innocent victim of passionate romance. In the sense that Paolo and Francesca were murdered without any moment for repentance. You see. So in that sense, in many senses, they represent the innocent victims. But Dante is not writing a poem about what ought to happen. He's writing a poem about what happens. It would be easy enough to write a poem about what ought to happen. But the question is, what happens? There are a couple of analogies that perhaps would be helpful. Um, when I scratch poison oak, it ought to get better. Because, because I have this enormous impulse to scratch it. And uh, the fact that it makes it worse is an annoying aspect of the universe. That somehow I would live in a universe that would supply me with that impulse uh, only to find out that that's the wrong impulse. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Another analogy. This 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 was written in the in the notes of the of of my Dante book from the last time we did Dante. Uh, and we did Dante last time right after my my son was born. In labor, there comes a point when you have when you feel an incredible urge to push. And uh, culture, in the form of the Lamaze class or the obstetrician or whatever says, don't push. Now, it ought to be that you wouldn't feel the need to push until it was time to push. But it's strangely not so. Don't push. Makes things a lot worse if you push. Even though you feel like you've got to push. Now, where would we be without culture, if you see what I'm saying here? Culture is the grandmother who says, I know it itches, but don't bother to scratch it. Culture is the 
the Ma's teacher who says, you're going to feel a need to push, and that's why I'm going to teach you how to breathe and count and all the rest of it, because you're not supposed to. It's not going to help. Culture comes to our aid when we are faced with these these uh, affects that are very powerful but misleading and tries to get us to and tries to inform us about something which our personal experience is incapable of informing us about. Now it's it's too bad that it's that way. It's very odd that it's that way. So if Dante were writing a poem about what ought to be, he would say, well, that, it ought to not be that way. But it is that way. Uh, the cons one suffers the consequences of not listening to the grandmother when she says, don't scratch. Or the obstetrician when she says, don't push. Let me read to you Shakespeare's sonnet um, on the subject. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Notice that what Shakespeare's interested in is the is the expense of spirit, is the spending of one's spiritual resources. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action until action, lust, is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted, and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait, on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have extreme, of bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before, a joy proposed. Behind, a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Well, so we have the innocent victims, apparently the innocent victims, Paolo and Francesca, and Dante wants to hear from Francesca about it. And in first, the first thing is, all he hears at first is a kind of rendition of the Romantic slogans, uh, without Francesca being, apparently without her being aware uh, of the irony involved in her repeated in her continuing to repeat these slogans. But Dante has rendered the slogans so that they are very illuminating if we look at them. In lines 100, 103, and 106, we have three, the three uh, tercets, all beginning with amore. Love that can quickly seize the gentle heart, took hold of him because of the fair body taken from me, how that was done still wounds me. Love that releases no beloved, beloved from loving took hold of me so strongly. Love led the two of us into one death, and so on. These are standard stock phrases out of the Romance mythology. What 
Francesca is not aware of is the irony of her saying them, particularly, I think, the, the middle one. Love that releases no beloved from loving. She is saying it, meaning love is so powerful that one has no choice. One just simply has to go with it. That's what she's saying. What Dante is saying with that line has to do with the verb, amoa masa mata mamasa mata mat, namely, even though there is a powerful emotion, one still has the obligation to the verb, love. Love is not something that happens to you, love is something you do. So, love that releases no beloved from the verb to love. It is not simply being caught up in some archetypal possession. One still has the obligation uh, to love, fidelity, as part of the loving. Well, all of that's still preliminary because Dante is warming up to hear the uh, Francesca's version. He speaks of how deep a longing had led them to the agonizing pass. I want to come back to this agonizing pass in a minute. So he says, he implores uh, Francesca to give him, to tell him the story. So I want to read it to you. Here we are. This is the heart of it. <clears throat> Excuse me, line 127 and following. One day, to pass the time away, we read of Lancelot, how love had overcome him. Lancelot, as you know, had an adulterous love affair with Arthur's wife, Guinevere, and uh, proved the undoing of the round table. We were alone and we suspected nothing. And time and time again, the re that reading led our eyes to meet and made our faces pale, and yet one point alone defeated us. When we had read how the desired smile was kissed by one who was so true a lover, this one who never shall be parted from me, while all his body trembled, kissed my mouth. A Galahold, to Galahold was the, was the go-between between Guinevere and, and uh, Lancelot. A Galahold indeed, that book, and he who wrote it too. That day we read no more. Well, in some ways, the last phrase is commentary on it all. That day we read no more. If they had read on, they would have found out that this deed was the undoing of the whole Arthurian order of things. Uh, in another way, if they had read on, they might have discovered something about uh, the verb to love. Uh, I'll remind you again of the Coventry Patmore uh, stanza in which he says, Love wakes men once a lifetime each. They lift their heavy lids and look, and lo, what one sweet page can teach. They read with joy, then shut the book. That day we read no more. Well, let's go back and look at this, what's supposed to be lust, and we'll see if it is, in fact, lust. One day, 
to pass the time away. That's a lie. One day, just to pass the time away, that's a lie. It is one of those lies that we are skillful at telling ourselves. Francesca is not aware even that it's a lie. She has so convinced herself of it. We were just passing the time away. It's a lie. Even though she believes it, it's still a lie. She has not consulted a truth that is there to be consulted. And so she we've already been alerted, see, by this Samiramis who concocts a nice little rationale for it after the fact. Well, we're getting a much more uh, subtle version of that right here. But Samiramis, what we learned about Samiramis applies here too. And what Dante is showing is that we we can we can read about Samiramis and we can say, oh yes, that's terrible. But then having just told us what he's going to do, Dante does it to us and we fall for it. See? Oh, and then we're like Dante. We're saying, oh, that's just amazing. Ooh, how could you possibly? That's a lie. To pass the time away is a lie. We read of Lancelot. They read a book. A book. How pathetic. So anemic. How did this passionate romance happen? Well, we were reading a book. <laughs> God, is Okay, so they were reading a book. How love had overcome him. Notice now, love is something that happens to you. It's not the verb. We were alone and we suspected nothing. That's lie number two. <laughs> we suspected nothing. And time and time again, that reading led our eyes to meet and made our faces pale. And yet one point alone defeated us. Notice, defeated us. We were the victims of it. There are no perpetrators here. The only perpetrator is a book. See? The sin is being committed, according to Francesca, by the book, and maybe by the author of the book, but certainly not by these people. And in a certain way, she's got a point. When we had read how the desired smile was kissed by one who was so true a lover, this one, who never shall be parted from me, while all his body trembled, that's almost comic, while all his body trembled, kissed my mouth. A gullahult indeed, that book and he who wrote it. Notice, somebody else gets the blame. Love happened to us. It's love's fault. And it's the person who wrote this book's fault. It's not our fault. And we read no more. So, now we can go back and look Again, you get the trajectory in Dante and you, you see how things hold together. The first group of, of uh, souls that we visited were the uncommitted, who didn't even deserve hell because they had never done anything of a committed nature one way or another. So they're blown in, they're chasing around a little uh, flag around this field forever. On the other side of the river, in limbo, we have the 
And they, they made no choice. They made no fundamental choice. On the other side of the river in limbo, we have people who made no choice because they had no paradigm. They had no... The choice, the radical choice, was simply not placed before them. At least I think that's Dante's rendition of that. And now, just the first group of sinners we meet are the sinners who make the faintest possible choice. A choice which is hardly worthy of the name choice, but just enough so that they merit hell. But just barely a choice. Because this whole thing, which is supposed to be lust, is laced with passivity. It is not lust. Notice they were, their faces were pale. Now, lust is supposed to be red-blooded. Lustiness in the, in the positive sense of lustiness is supposed to be, have some vitality to it. They were pale. And it happened to them. And they were reading a book. The souls that are here are guilty of a kind of, a kind of sexualized ennui. A kind of, uh, a kind of sleepiness. So that it is lack of passion more than passion. And if you go back and read Francesca's version of it, you'd be hard-pressed to find passion, real passion. In other words, it is a surrender of consciousness. It is the, it is the sexual version of wrapping the drapery of my couch about me and lying down to pleasant dreams. It is the return to the womb of unconsciousness. Surrendering consciousness for something less energetic than itself. And you will also notice, maybe, I don't know if you do these, if you ever do these laboratory studies, uh, but um, if you want to do a laboratory study and want to take a visit to one of the many fern bars that are, uh, that dot the social landscape, you know about fern bars. Well, you will find if you go in and sit there for, uh, for, long enough to take in what's happening, you will, you'll discover that the atmosphere is not one of passion. It is one of tedium. It is one of boredom. It is one where, as the old country music song says, the girls get prettier at closing time. It is not passion. And that's the world that Dante is studying in this canto. This is not passion. This is the surrender of consciousness. And it is the destruction of the basis for love. Love requires consciousness and honesty. And both of those are compromised. Francesca lies to herself and to us when she tells the story. And she and Paolo both surrender consciousness. So what is the sin that's being punished in the second circle? It's resignation. Resignation is what they're guilty of. In Dante, nobody's ever punished for their sin. They're punished by their sin. 
And so they are whipped around by these winds. They have, they have uh, resigned themselves. Uh, and if one used the analogy of a ladder, one could say that the troubadours came along to sing the great praises of the first rung of the ladder. And uh, they got everybody excited about stepping onto that first. The, the ladder is the ladder of consciousness love. The, those, two are, those two words at the, at the upper rungs of the ladder, those two words become synonymous, consciousness and love. Uh, but the troubadours are trying to get everybody to take that first step, to leave that sort of flat-footed world and step onto the first rung of the ladder. Passionate romance. Paolo and Francesca were already on the second rung. They had already begun the process of the maturation of that love with other people. And they returned to that rung. 